Matthew chapter 12 is uh, where we will uh, begin today as we continue. Matthew 12, verse 38. So you follow along in your copy of Scripture as I read from mine. Matthew 12, verse 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeing rest, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I'll return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, so clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, verse 48, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Howard Hendricks taught seminary students for 50 years in Dallas, Texas, over 50 years. And thus, being around these young seminary students, he had a lot of exposure to young men who were looking for wives. And he had a lot of conversations with them about their uh, uh, longings and desires and uh, hopes for a wife that God might in due time bring into their lives. Often it would happen that a couple of, of students would be standing around talking to him, and the third guy who was usually there was not there because he'd be off with his girlfriend, his girlfriend, the girl that no one really liked except him apparently. And, and, and the, the guys would complain. They would say to Hendricks, what does he possibly see in her? Now these were seminary students. The awe should have gone in the other direction. The awe should have been, why would anybody possibly want to date us? But that was not the way it was. So uh, they would say, what does he possibly see in her? And Hendricks would say, and he said this for five decades, obviously something you don't. That's a good line for you to keep in mind when you meet your nephew's girlfriend. Because you know your nephew, he's, I mean, he's a member of your family, but he's a little odd, right? Just a little odd. And the girl he brought to the family dinner was like normal. Like she was reasonably attractive and she was personable and she was friendly. And, and, and you, you know, after it was over, you thought to yourself, what does she see in him? 
And the answer is, obviously, something you don't. I want you to take that answer, that line, and I want you to put it over this passage that we just read. This is not describing a dating relationship at all, but this passage is about what the Pharisees did not see in the Lord Jesus. You know, as we've been walking through the book of Matthew, that starting in chapter 10 and increasing through the rest of the book, actually, there is rising antagonism between Jesus and the leaders, the religious leaders in Israel, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the scribes, increasing antagonism, increasing hostility. And and I think Matthew wrote these chapters in part to help his earliest readers. His earliest readers would have been confronted with a very significant question that maybe went something like this. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and Matthew believes he is, right? I mean, he he demonstrates it. The genealogy that starts the book, the uh, fulfilled prophecies that continue in chapters 2 and 3, the miracles, the the mastery of the, the law of Moses, Jesus wants you to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Matthew wants you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. If Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, then why, why did the Jews crucify him? Why didn't the Jews believe in him? Why are there not more Jewish followers of Jesus if Jesus is the Jewish Messiah? Uh, Even in the beginning of the church, uh, from the first days, of course, of the church, the vast majority of people who were in the church were Jews. Very soon thereafter, Gentiles overtook them in numerical supremacy. Why is that? So how can, or we can ask it a different way, how can Jesus be the Jewish Messiah since so many of the Jews have rejected him? And Matthew's answer that he provides for us in these chapters is the faith leaders in Israel did not see what they should have seen in Jesus. And today what I want to do is I want to show you from this text what they did not see in Jesus And I want to come at this from a particular angle because I I believe, and I'm right to believe this, that most of you are followers of Jesus. You have seen in Jesus what the Pharisees did not see. And you you have turned and trusted in him. You've seen what they refused to see. And I want to remind you of what you have seen in Jesus that they did not see because I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you that when you make sacrifices for the sake of Jesus, I want to remind you that it's worth it. What you believe about him, what's true about him that you have seen and you believe, make it reasonable, rational, make it the best possible choice you can, those sacrifices. It's worth doing those things for the sake of Jesus. I'm thinking about your life, not today, but on on a more regular Sunday afternoon when you've come to church in the morning and you brought your toddler with you and coming to church in the morning totally ruins their sleep schedule, and you, you, you wrestle all afternoon with a cranky child. And then about 5.15, you look at the clock, and you remember it's time for pyro, and you've got to get in your car, and it's dark, and it's cold outside, and you've settled in, and you uh, have your slippers on and not your shoes, and you've got to get in the car and come so you can play games with a bunch of junior high students and pray with a bunch of senior high students, and love them, and encourage them, and befriend them. It's worth doing that for the sake of Jesus. And I'm thinking about your Tuesday. Your Tuesday after you had a really hard day, and you finally sat down at the end of the day. (sighs) Nobody in the house needs anything from me. Here I am, 
and you have opportunities at that moment in time, what are you going to do? You can pick up your phone and scroll. You can pick up your remote and flip. Or you can pick up your Bible and read. It is worth it for the sake of Jesus to put your phone down and put your remote down and pick up your Bible. It's worth it even if you fall asleep while you're reading it. I want to remind you of that. I want to remind you that that's what you believe because you have seen in Jesus what the Pharisees did not see but should have. So five things that the Pharisees didn't see that they should have. Number one, they should have seen how Jesus' resurrection changes everything. They should have seen the significance of that event that Jesus points to in this passage. The scene begins with a question from the Pharisees. They say, Master teacher, uh, we want to see a sign from you. And I have questions about this request. One of my chief questions is, have you not been paying attention? Don't you know all the things that Jesus has been doing? I mean, you, you just saw, you just saw him cast a demon out of someone and you didn't dispute with the fact that he did it. Your argument was, was the cause. You didn't dispute that something happened. You just, you just attributed to Satan and not to the Holy Spirit. What about, what about that guy with the withered hand that you brought to Jesus on the Sabbath? You brought the guy with the withered hand to Jesus on the Sabbath, knowing he was able to restore his hand, and you brought him to test Jesus to see if he would do it on the wrong day. You know he can do miracles. Why are you asking for a sign? This makes no sense at all. Those signs are accrediting signs. You're supposed to know who Jesus is because of the signs. Uh, Peter, uh, Peter says this in Acts 2 when he's preaching. Look what he says about the signs in Acts 2.22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. Jesus did these signs so you'd know who he is. And the Pharisees say, uh, we need a sign. Now, it's possible that they're asking by a sign here, it's possible that they're interested in some specific sort of divine message. Some message that would be incontrovertibly from God, writing in the sky, fire from heaven, angels, some, something that is not, you know, an earthly miracle, but something that is so heavenly that you can't deny it. Now, I wonder if, if there's part of you that can relate to this request that they have. Show me, prove to me that you're who you say you are, Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, that might be a, um, it might seem like a reasonable request to you. Or maybe you are a follower of Jesus, but sometimes, sometimes you just are awash in doubt. And, and it would be nice if, if God would just do something that would, <laughs> have you ever been, been uh, you know, alone in a room and you say, God, if you're real, please just turn the light on? Just, if you just do this, this one thing, I, I'll know that you're real and I'll believe in you. I'll try, just, just turn the light on. You, you certainly can do it. I know you can do it. Just, just help me here. If you've ever prayed that way or something like it, you would not be the only person in the church who has ever prayed something like that. And maybe there's a few things that might be going on at this point in time. One that's not specifically addressed in the text, although peripherally, maybe 
can I suggest to you uh, gently, maybe there are signs around you. God has made himself known around you in ways that you're just not seeing. Like the Pharisees, all these miracles, that they're not seeing the significance of them. You know, um, in the book of Romans, in the book of Psalms, several times in the Bible, the Bible says that creation testifies to the power of God. Maybe, maybe you just need to open your eyes a little bit to the wondrous world that is around you. G.K. Chesterton said this, uh, that British teacher, philosopher, he said, the world is not lacking in wonders, but in a sense of wonder. We're so good at predicting the weather, and we can look at barometers, and we can look at, at um, uh, the temperature, and we can watch patterns, and we use our computer models, and, and we're, we are, what, masters of the weather, and yet we have no time to sit and look at the glories inherent in a snowflake. Maybe, maybe there's signs around you you're just missing. Maybe you're missing how God, in his wondrous way through the Holy Spirit, changes the lives of people that are around you. Maybe you're missing that. There's no follower of Jesus. It's a finished product. Our membership is made up exclusively of hypocrites. That, that it, it, we all, none of us live up to uh, what we believe God has called us to do. We're, we're in process. But you know people whose lives have been significantly changed by Christ, don't you? I read a story a couple months ago. I remember the plot. I don't remember the details. You remember this? It's like listening to a, uh, your mother talk about a movie, right? Okay, so I remember the plot, but not the details. So uh, bear with me. It'll make sense. 150 years ago or so, there was an evangelist who worked in one of the great cities of the world, London, Chicago, New York, Philadelphia, I don't remember. And he worked in some of the poorest areas of this city with some of the most broken people. Uh, the, the people that he met with on a regular basis were alcoholics, uh, the homeless, um, um, uh, the, the poorest of the poor, prostitutes, uh, thieves. He, he worked with the what... Um, in, in less polite circles, they sometimes call the dregs of society, right? Like just lost, broken, forgotten people. And he would, he showed mercy to them and he told them about Jesus and many of them then became followers of Christ and joined churches and he had this, a, quite a, a well-known growing ministry. And there was a man in that same city who was equally well-known for his unbelief. He did not believe in God, did not believe the gospel, and, and was a, a very critical of this man's work. So he challenged this evangelist. He said to him, listen, let's have a debate over whose ideas are better. Uh, I will come and I will represent my atheist views and you can come talk about Jesus. Let's have a debate in public and settle who's right and who's wrong. And the evangelist said, that's fine. That's fine with me. I have an idea though. Um, one condition, I will bring 100 people whose lives have been significantly changed by my message, and you bring 100 people whose lives have been improved and helped, who, people that you've really brought more, more joy to and, and fulfillment to it, with, with your message, and then we can have the debate. The atheist canceled. Do you know people whose lives have been significantly changed by the good news of Jesus? Maybe there's signs around... You're asking, maybe you're asking God to turn lights on and there's spotlights everywhere all around you. Just look. 
Something else might be going on, and Jesus addresses this particularly with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law here. Jesus is gentle with doubters. He is not gentle with these self-righteous skeptics. Verse 39, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation has for a sign. I am not a performer. I do not perform miracles on demand by self-righteous skeptics. You know, Jesus is more gentle at times with, with doubters than this, but he is, he is taking a hammer to their hard hearts. He says they're a wicked and adulterous generation. We're familiar with the word wicked. Why would he say adulterous and how can a generation, this group of people around him, how can they be adulterous? It doesn't make sense. Well, Jesus, I think, is, is uh, uh, appealing back to the Hebrew scriptures and one of the great metaphors and images of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God was in covenant with his people Israel. There was a covenant between Yahweh and the people of Israel, a covenant relationship they had with him. But the people were unfaithful to the covenant. They worshipped other gods. And in that sense, they're uh, adulterers. Their idolatry is a form of adultery. It's a form of covenant breaking, like a, uh, a husband who uh, uh, breaks his marriage vows or a wife who breaks her marriage vows. You're, you have broken covenant and are guilty of adultery. And Jesus is saying to them that they're an adulterous generation, not because idolatry was flourishing during Jesus' day. In fact, it was not at all. But he's saying to them, your hearts are as far away from my, from God as, as an adulterous spouse is. You're a wicked and adulterous generation, and you're asking for a sign. I'll tell you the sign you're going to get. It's the sign of Jonah. Jonah. Now, in the next few verses, he makes this comparison between Jonah and his experience and what's going to happen to the Lord Jesus. Just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, is going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Uh, he's going to die. He's saying this. He's going to die and rise again, and his resurrection is going to be a sign to this generation. Now, some of you, some of you perhaps are bothered by the, the timing of this, the, the, the hours you're doing computation in your head. Three days and three nights in our Western computation is what? 72 hours. It's going to be 72 hours of three days and three nights. Uh, and how can Jesus be in the tomb for three days and three nights? Because the time between Friday afternoon and Sunday morning is not 72 hours. So how, what do we do with the... the the math here doesn't work. Well, in this culture, any portion of a day counted as the whole day. So don't be bothered by the math. And if you want, you can, I suppose, go and try and convince your boss about this, that a portion of the day counts as the whole day. You can give that a try. Tell them it's biblical and see what happens. Don't do that. I'm just kidding. But that, that would have been okay in, in, this, in this culture. Jesus is saying, look, if the miracles don't convince you, if the miracles don't convince you, just wait 18 months or so, Jesus says to them. Then you will see a sign. Oh, you will see a sign. It's interesting in the gospel preaching in the book of Acts, how much, especially at the beginning, Peter refers to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Where he looked at Acts 2.22, look at Acts 2.23. This man, speaking of Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. 
And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You crucified Jesus, but God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. And then later in Acts 2, verse 32, he says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Now, Peter here is proclaiming the center of the message of what we believe as followers of Jesus. We believe that according to the plan of God, Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. He suffered the wrath of God that we deserve, died, was buried, and rose again. And we proclaim this message, we, we announce this good news, we call on people to believe this good news, to trust in the Lord Jesus as Savior. If you don't recognize that Jesus is the one who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, and if you're not trusting in him, you're not a Christian. Peter is uh, proclaiming this message, but notice where he's proclaiming it. He's proclaiming it in Jerusalem. You can go out of town just a couple of miles, maybe not even that far, and find the tomb where Jesus was. Maybe there's still some remnants of the Roman seal on the stone. And you can go talk to the Roman soldiers. It's only been, as Peter's preaching, like 40 days since Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, be careful, though, when you go talk to them about what they'll say in public. See, what they'll say in public is the disciples came and stole the body. Get them alone quietly and ask them really what happened, and they'll tell you. Peter's like, Jesus is alive. He's alive. We're witnesses of it. You saw him be crucified. He was put in the ground. The tomb is empty. He's alive. And Jesus says, that's the sign. That's the sign, you Pharisees and teachers of the law, that you should see, that should, you should recognize I am who I claim to be, and you should recognize that it changes everything. Most of the New Testament letters written by the Apostle Paul are an effort to explain to the people in his congregations that he planted, explain to them the full significance of the fact that Jesus is alive and how that changes everything. For example, it changes how you suffer. Our hope is outside of this world because Jesus rose from the dead. Our home is outside of this world. And when, when, when difficulty comes, when affliction comes and trials come, it doesn't devastate us because our hope is not here. It, it hurts. It's hard. But it's not devastating because this is not the source. Of, this life is not the only source of our joy. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Paul writes about this. He says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. These are light and momentary troubles in comparison to the glory. So... We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We, we look at unseen things. We look at eternal things. That's where our hope, our treasure is outside of this world. So we suffer differently. This is just the pregame show. Kickoff is coming. If we were sitting in a theater this would be the overture we would be listening to. The curtain hasn't even opened. For those of you who love snow, this is just the forecast. The, snow, the storm is yet to come. This is a future that is guaranteed for us by the resurrection of Jesus. That's the sign you're going to get, Jesus says, 
That is the sign that you need to heed. And what's interesting is, as we read, especially the Gospel of Luke, Jesus announces this sign knowing that even that will not be enough to convince the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. We know that because of a story that Jesus told in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about two men who died. One of them was named Lazarus. He was a faithful follower, and he uh, died and went to paradise, Abraham's side, Luke uh, says, Jesus says in Luke 16. The other man who died was a wicked man. We don't know his name. He was a rich, wicked man, and he went to Hades where he was in torment, Jesus said. The man in torment cried out to Abraham. He could see Abraham, and he said, Oh, Abraham, please send Lazarus to my brothers so that Lazarus can tell them that they should repent so that they don't end up in this torment here. And Abraham says, We're not sending Lazarus back. Uh, and, and your brothers, if they want to, they can read the Bible. They can read Moses and the prophets. No, he, the rich man said. No. You have to send Lazarus back. They, they, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. And then Jesus, quoting Abraham, says this. Abraham said to him, that rich man, if they do not believe Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I don't know if his audience recognized this, but Jesus is speaking to them about what's going to happen very soon. Jesus is going to be the one who's going to rise from the dead, and it, they won't believe. It's a heart problem. It's a, it's, it's a wicked, adulterous problem. The Pharisees don't see it, but you do. That's why you endure suffering the way that you do because you see the significance of the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we'll pick up the pace. Here, what else don't the Pharisees see? Number two, they don't see that Jesus is the great prophet. Jesus is the great prophet. Speaking of Jonah, he says, Jonah went and preached to Nineveh, and the Ninevites repented. Uh, and something greater than Jonah is here. Now, I don't know if you're paying attention in chapter 12. Here, Jesus says he's greater than Jonah. Did you notice, you remember back in verse 6, Jesus says that he's greater than the temple. In verse 8, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. He's greater than the Sabbath. Back in, in verse 4, he makes reference to David. I deserve all of the rights and recognition and privileges that David does. And now he says he's greater than Jonah. This is why you have ceded control of your life to him because he's God's ultimate spokesman. He's the great prophet. Number three, he's also the great sage. Jesus is the great sage. These two are kind of related. Sage isn't a word that we use very often. Sage is what's in your spice drawer, right? Um, but sage is a, a wise man or woman. There's three great, we talk about in the Hebrew scriptures, three great offices, prophet, priest, king. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. He's the great high priest. He's the, the king, the coming king. We should add to that list of three, four. Jesus is the sage. He's the wise one. He is the wisdom of God. And Jesus tells, he says, he's the sage who's greater than Solomon. Add that to your list. Greater than Jonah, greater than the temple, greater than the law, greater than David, greater than Solomon. Now, there is no better way to antagonize your Jewish audience in the first century than by talking to them about Gentiles in the Old Testament who believe. Huh, that's really a great way to antagonize them. He already talked about the people of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh are going to judge you. Now he talks about this woman, the queen of the south. We think 
modern-day Yemen is where she came from. She traveled a great distance to come and listen to Solomon, and now Jesus says, someone greater than Solomon is here, and she will rise up at the, at the end and the day of judgment, and the men and women of Nineveh will rise up in the day of judgment, and they will condemn you because something greater than Jonah is here, something greater than Solomon is here, and you wouldn't even cross the street to listen. Not only is Jesus antagonizing them a little bit by talking about a Gentile, a faithful Gentile, he's talking about a faithful Gentile woman. What a way to goad these Pharisees. May God double and triple the number of women in our congregation who are as hungry for wisdom as the Queen of the South was. I just talked to you about uh, Howard Hendricks and his advice for marriage. Find ye a wife who is as hungry for the wisdom of God as the Queen of the South. Won't hurt if she's rich too, just to say. Just, just saying. But find yourself a wife who is as hungry for wisdom from God as the Queen of the South was. You know that Jesus is the great prophet. You know that he's the great sage. That's why you've ceded your life to him, because he's God's wisdom. He's God's spokesman. He tells us how to live because he's right. He's, he is from God. He's God's word to us, for us. We cede control of our lives to him. Look how Andrew Murray described it. And he's thinking about a student before his teacher. The true pupil, say of some great musician or painter, yields his master a wholehearted and unhesitating submission in practicing his scales, he's a pianist, or mixing the colors, he's a painter, in the slow and patient study of the elements of his art, he knows that it is wisdom simply and fully to obey. It is this wholehearted surrender to his guidance, this implicit submission to his authority, which Christ asks. We come to him asking him to teach us the lost art of obeying God as he did. The only way of learning to do a thing is to do it. The only way of learning obedience from Christ is to give up your will to him and to make the doing of his will the one desire and delight of your heart. Do this because he's the great prophet. He's the great sage. Now, number four, what else did the Pharisees see? The Pharisees did not see that rejecting Jesus has real consequences. Rejecting Jesus has real consequences. Now, in verses 43 and 44 and 45, Jesus tells a story that is strange. I, I don't quite know what to do with it, but here's what happens in the story. There was a demon who was, had possessed, was demonizing a, a person. And the demon of his own volition left the person and went away. Why? <laughs> he went on vacation. Jesus said he went through arid places seeking rest. Apparently, it's hard work possessing someone, and you need vacation every now and then. So he goes to all of his favorite places, dry, dusty, dirty, arid places, and he really can't find the rest he wants. Maybe the demon who'd rest, rented the cabin next to him stayed all, up all night playing loud music. I don't know. He can't find rest. So he goes back to the original place, and Jesus is clearly talking about a person, but he uses house language. I'm going to go back to the house I left. And he goes to the house, and he finds it, Three descriptors. 
unoccupied. Clearly it's unoccupied because the previous occupant has now come back, right? He wasn't there, but now he's back. He found the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Who swept the house clean and put it in order? Who Marie Kondoed this place, right? Who did that? That's a good question. I'm glad you asked that question. We'll come back to that question in a minute. And the demon uh, found the house empty and unoccupied, and he went out and he found seven other spirits. The house is so great, he went out and found seven other spirits more wicked than itself. Apparently, there is a ranking of wickedness in, in impure spirits. Um, there's, there is an order of rank. The, the Bible talks about that, and maybe it's determined by your wickedness. I don't know. He finds his seven wicked older stepbrothers, and he brings them back, and they move into this person. And Jesus says the final condition of that person is worse than the first. It's worse off. Now, there's so many questions I don't know, and so many things I don't know about this story, but he says at the end, that is how it will be with this wicked generation. Here's the point Jesus is making. Jesus says to them, listen, I have come to you I have come and I am pushing back against the darkness. I am healing diseases. I am uh, casting out demons. I am pushing back against the darkness. I am restoring the original order that God made when he called the world into existence. Or you can also say it this way. I am anticipating the kingdom that is to come and you are seeing the fruit of that kingdom that is to come, the wonders of it. I am pushing back. But the people, you are still vulnerable. And the reason you're still vulnerable is because you need to fill the house that I've emptied out. You need to believe. You need to fill the house with truth. You need to invite me to come in and take residence in your heart. Otherwise, you are vulnerable. Now, Jesus mentions this sweeping clean and putting in order. I think there he is poking fun a little bit at the Pharisees and their moral reform. The Pharisees are excellent moral reformers. They really know how to put a, a life in order. You want to know if your life is a mess and you want to know how to put your life in order, go to the Pharisees. They will give you 750 rules for life. And they will tell you how to put your life into order. They'll get you on a schedule. They'll, they'll, they'll tell you how to eat and how to dress and how to worship. They've got rules and rules and rules and rules that will fix your life on the outside. But it's not heart work that they're going to do. Uh, uh, remember, Matthew's, Matthew tells us at the end of Matthew that one of the aspects of discipling, discipling involves teaching people to obey Jesus. Teach people to obey everything I have commanded you, he says. Here, Jesus is giving us a clue about the wrong way to obey his commands. The wrong way to obey the commands of Jesus is just externally rule following from the outside. The wrong way to follow Jesus' rules is to eliminate any sort of heart work in the process of it. If you obey Jesus only with external moral reform and you have an empty heart, you will be worse off than if you've never heard of Jesus before. You know this, right? You know that following Jesus involves heart work. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, we read this verse, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. We're after heart work. 
One of my favorite uh, Bible teachers, George Mueller, I learned how to pray in part from George Mueller. He said, the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. Think about that phrase for a minute. Your alarm goes off in the morning, and, and is your soul happy in the Lord when your alarm goes off in the morning? <laughs> no, it's not. Don't lie to me. You're a little bit, oh. And immediately maybe comes into your mind all the things that you have to do today. Oh, the house. Oh, the field. Oh, it's expense report day at work. Oh. Right. Immediately start to think of all those things. And George Mueller would like you to pull back the covers a little bit. And George Mueller would like to say to you, do you know your most important job today? Your most important job today is to make sure your soul is happy in the Lord. It's more important than your house, and it's more important than the fields, and it's more important than your expense report. Make sure your soul is happy in the Lord. It's the most important thing that you need to do today. We work at this. This is why we sing together when we gather on Sunday mornings, because singing is one of the ways that God, by the Spirit, tunes our hearts, right? When we sing true things about Him. Come, thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. That's why our worship team is among our most important disciples in our church, as they help us in this. Now, number five, what else didn't the disciples of the Pharisees see? What else didn't the Pharisees see? Number five, Jesus invites us into his family. Jesus invites us into his family. In the passage, verse 46, Jesus' family, uh, his blood relatives come and they show up where he's teaching. By all accounts, they're not believers. John 7 says explicitly that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. And uh, the other gospels, Mark and Luke, in parallel accounts of this, say that they have that Jesus came, sorry, his brothers came because they thought Jesus was a little crazy and they were coming to bring him home. They are outsiders in every sense. They're outsiders literally in this passage, right? Isn't it, uh, Matthew sets this scene up really well. Jesus is inside teaching. Here come the unbelievers outside. They are outsiders in every sense of the word. And, and they say, hey, uh, um, we're here, we're here. Uh, your mother and brothers are here, Jesus gets word. And then Jesus turns and he points to the disciples and he says, Behold, here are my true mothers and brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and brother. Now some of you, that passage should land very tenderly in your heart because following Jesus has cost you some of your blood relations. This has driven a wedge of some kind between your unbelieving brothers and sisters and parents. And this is such good news from the Lord Jesus. Here's the members of my family. My family are the ones who hear the will of my Father in heaven and, and do the will of my Father in heaven. Isn't that good news? We should think about how this works and in in, in how Matthew is teaching here. So in Matthew 11, he, uh, Jesus is very, uh, he offers these very strict and condemnation. 
the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented if they had heard, uh, had they seen these miracles, but you have not. Judgment is coming for you. It would be worse than the day of judgment for you. He says this to the Pharisees. And then Jesus announces very tenderly, right? Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. That in chapter 12, again, the men of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment and condemn you because they believed and you have not believed. And then he says, Anybody who does the will of my father is my mother and brother and sister. So there's this condemnation and then this very gentle call. Jesus is not advocating salvation by works. He's saying that your family relationships are evident by the way you live. The family relationship is prior to your obedience. You're members of the family and it shows up in how you live. Some of you know this well, right? You've invited foster children to live into your home. They come into your house. And when they come into your house, uh, you have welcomed them in. You give them food and a bed and, 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 and parenting and siblings. And they come in. They're part of the family, but they don't know any of the rules. They don't know where the shoes go and they don't know where the coats go and they don't know how you eat dinner. They don't, they don't know nothing. But after... A couple months, four or five months, you begin to see little signs, right? Oh, look, there's a pair of shoes in there where they belong. It's amazing. Look, that coat, it's, it's hung up. It, it's, I, I know it. Wow. This person that we invite into our family is starting to do the will of the parents. And, and, and their, their presence in the family is evident their their membership in the evident is now a membership in the family is now evident in how they're living. That's what Jesus is saying here. The family relationship, the heart work here is manifest in doing the will of my Father who is in heaven. In November 2014, the Food and Drug Administration announced its rules for publishing calorie counts on menus. Have you seen that in some chain restaurants? You open up the menu and there's the calorie count of all of the food. The idea is that you're supposed to see those numbers, be horrified, and not eat the 800-calorie hamburger. Instead, eat the 500-calorie chicken. They've done numerous studies about this since they did this. 75% of Americans support menu labeling. 84% of Americans say that menu labeling is helpful. 93% say menu labeling is important. And practically no one changes their menu options based on what they see on the menu. Actually, there's been 31 published studies that say it makes very little difference in what we actually eat. You see, but you don't see. You Pharisees, you have all the signs, you have all the evidence you need that Jesus is who he says he is, but you do not see. So I ask you, you who are followers of Jesus, what do you see in him? Following him is sometimes hard, it's sometimes demanding. Why would you do that? What can you possibly see in him? And the answer is, obviously something the Pharisees didn't. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you, and again, we are thankful to you for your word that is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to us. It is truth. It is at times a sharp knife that does the soul surgery that we need. Lord, I come before you and ask you for your mercy this morning as we consider this passage. 
Father, we need reminders of, of the wonder of the Lord Jesus and what we have seen in him so that we remember that the sacrifices we make for his sake are well worth it. Help us because sometimes he grows dim in the light of the allurements and attractions and, and things in this world. The Lord Jesus grows dim. So again, I ask that you would focus our attention, clean out our eyes so that we can see him again anew, afresh, aright, and seeing him in his glory, yield our lives gladly to him. Thank you for the many evidences of grace in this church and the lives of people who live out rightly what they see in him. Help us to do it more and more for the sake of your dear son, we pray. We ask these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.